Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! Minnesota's coming in cold, but we're coming in hot. Just like the 8-1 and one Vikings. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this blustery, cold, snowy, bad commute kind of morning are Andy Bramson and Matt Kukum. Guys, how long in excess of your normal commute did it take you to get to Bethel today? About about 10 extra minutes. It was almost double. Yeah, well, I mean, my my commute's short, so it was about double. Yeah, our commutes are basically identical. It took me about twice the normal length. So, yep, yep. Chris, yeah, you made commute, a good call by staying staying home this morning. So yeah. Yeah, my commute uh, uh travel time is doubled, so I'm waiting until everyone else clears the road before yep. I skate on my way to Bethel. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the first snow of the season for us. It's uh it's pretty. Um, and that's all I can say for that. Welcome to the next six months of our lives. Um, But we have some uh, warmer weather topics to talk about, including the midterms that happened last week, uh, just about six days ago. And yet we are still waiting a whole bunch of results, including some pretty pivotal ones about who's going to control the House of Representatives in Congress. Matt, what do we know timestamp 1015 Central Time on Monday. <laughs> okay, so we know um, that there are about 20 races um, in the House of Representatives um, for which we are still awaiting results. Um, Republicans have currently won 212 seats. Democrats have won 204. So that is a gain of 10 for Republicans so far. Um, it is likely they will get a majority, not out of the question that they could fail to do so. They will probably get a majority of sort of the the absolute sort of narrowest um, of margins, maybe maybe just a handful of seats. Um, the Senate, of course, we got just a quick reminder for our listeners: you need two hundred and eighteen to control the House. That is right. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, and of course, um, Democrats need only fifty to maintain control of the Senate with their tie-breaking vote from Kamala Harris. And it looks like they have done just that. So over the weekend, we were um, we received results from the Arizona and Nevada races. Both Democratic incumbents um, won those respective races. Mark Kelly won fairly handily, um, but Catherine Cortez Masto um, really sort of squeaked out um, her her win there. Um, we are awaiting results from Alaska. Um, which uses a different system. They use a ranked choice voting system. A Republican will win that. It's just a question of which Republican. Um, and of course, we have um, we have Georgia and their runoff election on December 6th. But now that runoff election will not be determinative of who controls the Senate. So still an important election, but not near of the consequence that it was two years ago when we had Georgia runoffs. Right, right. Uh, Andy, uh, any other um, notes to uh, add about the recent results coming in, specifically the race in Arizona, the race in Nevada? Um, uh, why? Well, let, let's let's get some facts on the ground first. Why mm-hmm. did these votes in particular take so long to come in relative to the rest of the country? I mean, I think w- one thing has to do with how they how they count votes. So Nevada has a very generous mail in. Uh, policy where you can mail them in up to election day. They can be taken up till Saturday. Then you still have to count them, of course. Um, and so that really just delayed, um, that delayed a lot of the results. Um, and Arizona, I mean, honestly, I don't know that I understand all the details there, but I think they need to get a better system. <laughs> it's my blunt outsider take. Yes. Um, like I it's think an insider they, take too. Carrie Lake said the same thing today. Yeah. Well, and, and like, I, I think she wants to question like the validity. I don't question the validity. I just think they do it a terrible job of like, you know, like you don't need to take this long, right? Like there's, there's ways to do this efficiently. You have many models around the country that would allow you to do that. Um, You should follow one of them. Right. So they are, I mean, like to me, Arizona this year was the new Florida. It's not that I, you know, from 2000, right. I don't question 
the final results. I just question like, why do you have to do such a bad job of getting there? Which because it raises it, it feeds those kind of narratives of something weird's going on. I think something some someone incompetence going on, but but that's a different issue. Yeah, they should be embarrassed. They re- yep, really should they be. should, and I hope their embarrassment will lead them to mm-hmm. improve their you know, their behavior. Just over the last couple of elections, Florida has gotten the results out lickety split. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's mostly thanks to Jeb yeah. Bush, right? After the yeah. 2020 debacle, the hanging chads and everything. Or 2000, Bush yeah. Had, he's like, hey, yeah. we're going to become best in the nation. We're going to fix this. And yep. that's exactly what they did. Yeah. I mean, they were a national embarrassment in 2000. I remember that. <laughs> I, was in, I was in college back then. <laughs> yeah. They said, we don't want to be that guy. So congratulations, Florida. You're not that guy. Arizona, yeah, Arizona you've become that guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a lot of things still hang in the balance. We will get to the whys of that um, in a few moments, but let's just talk briefly about the what's. And so I'd like to hear from both of you about how the predictions for this election, when we made them ourselves, stack up to the reality that appears to be emerging from this election. We have a couple um, a couple sort of points to compare to. Mm-hmm. First of all, is the meaningless point of comparison of what, what I thought was going to happen. So I, I just wrote down here, I said boldly, courageously, and wrongly <laughs> that the uh, Senate would be controlled mm-hmm. by Republicans. Uh, yep. I think I said they yep. were going to get 54 seats, which would have been four more uh, than they could possibly get right now. So maybe yep. I was off by as much as five. Yep. I also thought that Republicans would take about 30 or so, I think I said, seats in the uh, in the House. And that doesn't look like it's going to come close to happening either. So I way overestimated the capacity of Republicans yep. in this election. But I was pretty close to guessing what the fundamentals would have suggested. So what do we mean as political scientists when we talk about the fundamentals? Yeah, I mean, I you know I've I've talked to several people in the last few days about this election. I think you know what's striking about this election is the fundamentals suggested a big Republican victory. Um, Joe, Joe Biden is twelve points underwater in terms of his approval rating. The economy is really struggling. Those suggest that the party in power should um, be kind of suffering, right? They should be kind of made to pay a consequence for that. And frankly, that didn't happen in this election. Um, and we should talk about why that didn't. But um, that is surprising. I mean, the Democrats had a great election considering um, those two factors, right? They, they've they held the Senate. They are going to at least have a very tight House. There's not such a chance they hold it. Probably not. But but it's going to be very tight, right? I mean, that's that matters, right? It's not going to be 240 Republicans. It might be 220, right? Um, and that's that's a big difference in terms of like what they can get done. They held governorships. They actually, you know, picked up at least one Senate seat, right? So, um, you know, that's that's really significant um, in in this year. Um, and what strikes me is like when you look at the polling, the polling was actually pretty doggone good in this election. I mean, it was it was within that margin of error. Um, if you just looked at kind of the the straight poll, um, you know, kind of polling data, right? It actually looked more favorable for the Democrats than the way that we suggested it would go, and the way a lot of experts were suggesting it would go, which was, well, this should be a Republican year because of the fundamentals. Um, so, if you're going to look at 538s, you know, kind of light forecast, which is, you know, them just relying on the polls, those were much more favorable to Democrats, and in fact, that turned out to be pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah. Remember, um, and this is something. I mean, I, I said, you know, Republicans would get 51 or 52. And that turns out yep. to be wrong. I also Not close. What yeah. I told people most often is for the Senate, you go either way, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. either, you know, um, Democrats maintaining, you know, 50, 51 seats or Republicans getting 53 to 54. None of those outcomes would be surprising given the polls. Right. So it was always going to be a question of would the fundamentals be more predictive? Um and sort of long-term trends be more predictive or would the polls mm-hmm. be more predictive, right? Mm-hmm. Because the fundamentals suggest that when the president's very unpopular, president's party is yep. going to get hammered, right? Historically, yep. since World War II, the president's party loses an average of 26 seats in the House, right? We're yep. looking at we're looking at maybe a, a 10 to 15 seat loss, right, in the House yep. at most. Um, and then president's party loses an average of four seats in the Senate, right? We're looking at 
um, at least a hold, if not a pickup of one, right? Yep. Um, which is truly remarkable. But this is not remarkable mm-hmm. given the polls, which suggested that a lot of these races were going to be very close. Yep. Um, the direction of the race, right? Who would win, the Republican or the Democrat, were, was within the margin of error of many of these polls. Uh, but the polls did did quite well. Um, and um, they did well in Wisconsin. They did well in Georgia, in Nevada, Arizona, and Ohio. Um, and where the polls did poorly, uh, they tended to underestimate Democratic performance, as it turns out. Um, one of the concerns going in is that they wouldn't be able to adequately capture sort of um, Republican turnout um, and support for Republican candidates. But it turns out when the, whereas the polls missed, they did it a little bit more um, in a in a pro-Republican and overly Republican way. So mm-hmm. um, so given the polling data, the outcomes are not surprising at all. Given the mm-hmm. fundamentals, they are surprising. Yep. All right. Well, I'll, note too, I'll, I'll note one other thing is that like, the thing to keep in mind is that the Senate map um, was never particularly favorable for Republicans in right. that there weren't that many Senate right. seats that yep. um, that were in purple states or blue states that would be easily picked up by Republicans. Um, this right. is going to be in contrast to two years from now, which is a very sort of Republican yep. map. So there weren't that many opportunities. However, um, some of the Senate seats that Democrats won instead of Republicans could have been easily picked up by Republicans. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they definitely fumbled away a couple of them, right? Which a good candidate would have won, I think, Pennsylvania in this year. Um, I think, you know, a good candidate probably would have won an outright majority in Georgia. If you look at Brian Kemp's numbers, right. Um, And a good candidate could have been much closer in Arizona, if not winning, Um, you know, so I think those those are three where like Republicans are going to sit and regret, right. Like those could have gone differently. Okay. So emerging out of this conversation, as well as emerging from um, popular media and political science conversation seem to be several competing hypotheses which might in the end be complimentary, uh, but several competing hypotheses for why this election turned out to be, I want to say, I, I'm, I always hesitate to say more favorable to Democrats because let's remember Democrats, at least in the House, are losing seats and Republicans mm-hmm. are likely to control the uh, House of Representatives, which they didn't before. And it's only by um, yeah. sort of extraordinary overperformance that, that the, the, the Senate will basically stay the same as it is. Um, yeah. So that that said, here's some of the competing hypotheses that I've heard recently um, for why this uh, election has, has been more favorable to Democrats than we expected. One is what you both just said, uh, especially Andy, candidate quality matters. And if we had had mm-hmm. a stronger candidate in uh in in georgia for example a stronger candidate in pennsylvania those two seats could have easily gone for republicans if you weren't running against Mehmet oz and, and herschel walker mm-hmm. uh the second competing hypothesis is that in exit polling people reported that they cared more about uh dobbs and the overturning of roe v wade than we expected and believed was the case before the election uh the weeks before the election the conventional wisdom was that republicans had clearly latched on to inflation and economic hardship as the key theme of this election and the democrats had messed this up by basically staying too long on abortion after the, the exit polls seem to suggest that no people really were motivated to buy, to vote on that. Um, so there's a question there as well. And the third is, I think the third hypothesis is maybe we've just miscalculated our fundamentals. Yes, the fundamentals over time would suggest a certain number of, of seats, uh, but within um, the modern era of increased polarization, maybe we can't expect that level of swinginess in our electorate. I'd love to hear your comments on any or all three of these kinds of ideas and how much they think, how much you think they matter relative to each other. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I have so many thoughts. Um, I'll just say a few quick things um, and then like hand it off to Andy. Um, First um, to your point about sort of swinginess, we have a lot fewer house seats that sort of swing back and forth. We have a lot more safe seats, seats that are, um, that are safely held by one party or the mm-hmm. other, right? Especially in the House of Representatives. This is because of sorting. 
um, as well as gerrymandering or just the way districts are drawn, right? So we we have a lot fewer seats that can get traded back and forth, which means that these big historic swings are just not possible anymore due to partisanship and um, this the sorting and gerrymandering, right? So um, so with fewer swing seats in play, this means there's um, less sort of maneuvering room um, and these swings back and forth are going to be smaller, right? Um, the other thing I'll say about, I want to say about exit polls is exit polls are mostly garbage. Um, they're, they're no offense, uh, yeah. Dr. Ward, but they, they're no, mostly I'm, garbage. Just, they're it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a data they, point that we need to contend with. And if it's garbage, we need to figure out why it's a garbage data point. Well, yeah. I mean, exit polls have, have increasingly become garbage simply because you can't really easily sort of select um, you can't easily select people who are going to respond in a scientific way. Um, there's been some attempts um, to um, to conduct sort of polling, not out, you know, to conduct polls, not outside the polls, right, outside the polling places, but to call people up. And um, AP VoteCast does this and some others. But but it turns out that Democrats respond a lot more to these than Republicans do. We've known that for a while. So I would suggest we could look at other data points to glean better information. So first of all, we can look to vote margins to identify instances of split ticket voting and undervoting, right? Turns out right. there was a lot of that. And we could walk through some of those. We can compare um, sort of the results of of elections to sort of the expected partisan lean of states. So every state basically has a degree to which they lean Republican or lean Democrat. We can glean that from historical trends and we can compare those trends to this current vote, right? So that information is particularly useful. Many states did deviate from their partisan lean this time around. That is not uncommon in midterms, mm -hmm. but this time the partisan lean um, quite uniformly broke towards Democrats in key races. And finally, of course, you can look at um, sort of the quality of candidates um, and look at their ideology and look how that ideology um, sort of can be compared to the median voter or the average voter within a particular state or district as well, and sort of detect deviation and see um, what sorts of candidates did sort of um, most strongly and what that might suggest about their sort of relative um, ideology compared to their district. So there's a lot of actually, there's a lot of sort of data that we can look to, um, but it requires sort of peeking under under the hood, so to speak, and seeing what's what's going on um, in order to make sense of the results. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, kind of to all that, I would say, I, mean, I think like that, that point about like the split ticket voting to me is interesting. So on the one hand, like I'm sort of sympathetic to the hypothesis that you raised Chris, which is maybe we're just less swinging. Maybe we're so polarized that we're just locked in. It doesn't really matter. I, you know, if I'm a Democrat, I'm a hardcore Democrat. And like, if the economy's in the tank and Biden's unpopular, I'm still going to go vote for my people because they're less, you know, terrible than the other people and vice versa. Right. But, but I think that there's like, there's plenty of instances where it's clear, like there were people who were voting for a Republican in this race, but a Democrat in this race, right? I mean, so again, the Georgia example is a really powerful one, right? I mean, Brian Kemp easily won in the first round, right? It's not, it was not close. Um, he defeated Stacey Abrams. Um, and yet, right, Warnock and Walker is really tight, right? Why is that? And I would suggest like Kemp's, I mean, Kemp's an incumbent, that matters, and Warnock's an incumbent, but also like, you know, people looked at Kemp and said, like, he can do the job of governor just fine. He's good. Herschel Walker has not inspired that kind of confidence. And so you had a pretty strong group of people who said, I want a Republican for governor. And they might have been open to Republican for Senate, when one would assume. And yet they said, not this Republican, right? Not this Republican for Senate. So I think there's still that room for swinging. Um, and, and some of the others saw even more dramatic swings. I mean, you can think of New Hampshire with, you know, Sununu and Bulldog, right? I mean, Sununu won big, uh, but so did Maggie Hassan, who's a Democrat um, for Senate, right? So um, there are some pretty, you know, there, there's some suggestion that there are, there are, there are people who can um, go both ways, but they are looking for, for that kind of competence um, to, to be, you know, to be in evidence. And it wasn't, I think, for a number of Republican candidates, which I think directly led to some of their underperformance. Yeah. Yeah. We, we talked about the possibility of a split ticket voting. And that said, yep. I said, you know, that's one of the things we're going to be keeping yep. an eye on. And, and lo and behold, yep. um, that's exactly what we had, you know, both in terms of, you know, a Democrat winning a, you know, a Senate race, but a Republican yep. winning a governor's race, or perhaps a, a, you know, Republicans winning both, but the governor sort of way outpacing um, the Senate candidate, right? So Ohio is a prime example of yeah. this, right? 
um, you know, Mike DeWine, right. very popular governor, um, yep. as you know, Chris, right? Yep. Um, he he had a you know 25 point margin, right? This is compared yeah. to JD Vance at a six point margin. That is a 19 yep. point sort of difference in the margins, right? Which is truly right. remarkable. Um there's less dramatic examples as well, but clearly we saw a lot of people sort of supporting sort of competent, um, competent incumbents who are not hyper ideological, and yep. a lot of people peeling off from the um, from the the candidates who are more ideological, who are more closely aligned with Trump, um, who sort of consistently sort of denied the results of the 2020 election. A lot of those candidates who were from you know, middle of the road states and districts, a lot of those flamed out as well. Right. Um, So I think you have, you know, something of a repudiation of not across the board, but something of a repudiation amongst some Americans who are in the middle or repudiation of political extremism. They see something in the Republican party that, that they don't like. They don't like candidates who, you know, insist on always opposing Democrats, not getting anything done in Washington. Um, and taking the most extreme positions, right? There are some Americans who are turned off by that sort of rhetoric um, and by that sort of platform, right? Obviously yeah. that does well in some parts of the country, um, but it we see once again that that sort of platform um, once again has cost Republicans a lot of races for the sort of basically the third election cycle in a row. That sort of coalition, that set of messaging um, has turned out to be um, less effective than they would have hoped. Yeah. And like one of the interesting things related to that is like, you know, 538 had this little piece on, you know, basically like election deniers um, who were non-incumbents. Um, it really did not help them. Like if they were challengers, right? If, you, if you're an incumbent, I mean, like people just sort of said, well, I know you. I mean, like uh, maybe that wasn't the best, but, you know, like I'm going to take sort of your body of work. But but for people who um, who were, you know, denying elections and trying to challenge, it was not a good strategy. Right. This did not work out. Um, and so, you know, I, I personally found that quite encouraging because I think, you know, if, if there's something we have to be able to agree on, um, it's, we have to be able to agree on the rules of the game. We have to say like, these are the rules we're playing by. This is our regime. This is how we elect power. And we have to agree that this is what we do. And we're going to respect those rules. Um, when we go into that. Um, so to see that kind of repudiation of a number of people who said, I'm not sure I want to play by those rules and yet I'm playing the game, right? It's like, no, if you're going to accept the game, you've got to accept the rules of the game. Um, So that was, you know, that was encouraging. And I hope that that is a corrective for both parties as we go forward to 24. If it is, it's only a modest corrective, Andy, because uh, people (laughs) who were incumbents who were questioning the validity of the 2020 election um, or the 20 um, were reelected pretty handily. It was only challengers where that yeah. effect seemed right. to prop up a little bit. Yeah. So the power of incumbency is still pretty, pretty powerful um, in those regards. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I, I do wonder though, is it, is it too much to read into this that the American people as a broader electorate have begun to move away from a move off of uh, the election validity as a significant salient voting issue? Is it too early to make that conclusion? I, I don't know. I mean, I think it. I think it only mattered to a subset of right. both parties, a, a larger subset within the Republican Party. Um, I mean, it, it is interesting that I mean, certainly you get sort of the election denial types that are doing well in really red areas, but but for a lot of your state level races. Um, where election denialism could be truly consequential for the presidential election. So these are governor's races. And then mm-hmm. um, the secretary uh, secretaries of state um, who run the election sort of administrations in each state, mm-hmm. basically almost all of the election denying Republicans running for those positions lost. Um, right. That suggests that people don't have an appetite for, um, for that sort of platform. Um, also, there've been a number of you know, election denial um, or election deniers or election sort of skeptics, right? Um, who have graciously conceded um, yep. their races yep. when they've lost, yep. right? Yep. Which yep. I think is also a good sign. I mean, there's yes. exceptions, yes. right? Um, you know, um, however, you know, I think Mastriano and Blake Masters are like, you know, the exceptions here, but a lot of them have graciously resigned. And that gives me a little bit of hope as well. Yep. Um, and yep. to, you know, I agree. I think this is a status quo election, right? Yeah. Um, incumbents in both parties did well. Yep. Many races were super tight. Um, yep. And the shifts in the House and the Senate are super small, right? 
I think you saw the fundamentals get washed out by other issues um, that didn't help Republicans, where Republicans hurt themselves. So I think your fundamentals were sort of canceled out by sort of, um, you know, Republican candidate quality um, and extremism in some cases. And so it's kind of a kind of a wash in a lot of ways. Okay, I want to drill down into that just for a second here. We've talked a lot about candidate quality. And mostly when we talk about that, we refer to the Senate, right? And specifically what we perceive to be weaker, less disciplined candidates on the on the stump, people like um Mehmet Oz and 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 uh um Herschel Walker. Was candidate quality an issue in the House? Because if that's gonna hold true, it should also be the case there too, right? Yes, I feel like I'm less converse in all the house races, but I, I would highlight one. Um, and I'm going to forget the exact names of the people because it's not my area, but, um, but out in Washington state, you'd had a, a Republican um, who had voted for the Trump impeachment. One of the 10 Republicans who did that, who lost the primary. Um, it's a heavily red district about R plus nine, I think in, in 2020. So, you know, favoring um, Trump over Biden. Um, so he lost the nomination battle. Of course, Trump had endorsed the primary opponent, um, and the person who got the nomination then fumbled away that seat. Um, it was, you know, there's not a lot of polling in house races. 538 had that as a 98% chance of a hold, just based on the fact that this is a R plus nine district. Um, the Democrat won. It was close, but the Democrat won. Um, so that suggests that, yeah, it does matter in other places too, where, you know, I mean, like, you know, sometimes, you know, people who are like districts are just too hard to fumble away. Right. And you can think of, you know, our own, you know, Minnesota, my district, you know, Michelle Bachman won it several times, right? Even though she got pretty extreme, she actually came close to losing the sixth district. Um, Ilhan Omar just won re-election down in the fifth district. She's somebody who almost lost her primary. She's, you know, really pretty extreme. Um, but again, it's really hard to lose that district if you're the Democratic nominee, just as it's hard to lose the sixth if you're a Republican. Um, so, you know, there's some districts where, you know, like it, it just doesn't matter, right? You could nominate anybody. And as long as they got the right party line, it's going to be fine. But clearly it did matter in certain places where it was close enough that there were people who said, you know what, maybe I would prefer to have a Republican representing the third district of Washington, but not this Republican. So let's go with this Democrat. We'll give them two years. And then if we don't like them, we get to do this again in 24. Yeah. I like to put sort of candidate quality and sort of hyper ideological extremism sort of like in two different buckets right mm-hmm. um because you get some candidates who like when you're talking about quality you're just like how good are you at campaigning are you persuasive sure. are you compelling sure. do you have certain sort yeah. of scandals or liabilities right yeah um yeah. you know people like you know oz and walker right have have lots of liabilities they're not yeah. very good campaigners right and i mean you see instances like this on the on the democratic side it was if they had run a better candidate they would have done better in those races right fetterman right in pennsylvania if yeah. he hadn't had a stroke um and had had all those liabilities, he would have been far better. And that yeah. margin would have been bigger, right? right? Mandela Barnes um, could have, um, you know, w- was not a great candidate um, in Wisconsin, not merely because he was more ideological, more progressive in a state that is, that is, you know, that leans Republican, um, but yeah. he just, he was, he was bad at campaigning, <laughs> um, you know, and, and that was a winnable race. Um, could have knocked off Ron Johnson, but didn't. So, um, so candidate yeah. quality matters, right? Um, but of course, I think, you know, well, first of all, it matters more in Senate races and governor's races, yeah. which are more high profile in which right. the challengers are oftentimes higher quality, better funded, um, get more traction more easily. Right. These House races, they are lower profile. Most people don't even know who their member of the House is or know who the challenger is. And so candidate quality like qua quality, like matters less. Right. What matters more is just how ideological the you know, in extreme, you know, the, the candidates are relative to each other. Right. And so I think that's part of the reason why you see some of these more extreme Republican candidates sort of repudiated in these house races, not merely because of sort of quality issues, but because of sort of how they have attached themselves to a Republican party that on the whole has basically stood for things that are not very popular with sort of um, your middle of the road, somewhat moderate Americans. I'm going to ask an ignorant question here to my friends who work more with American politics and parties. Is there any kind of data set that tracks the overall ideological bent of, say, Republican voters who vote in Republican primaries 
versus Republican voters who vote in Republican general elections. Because I do feel like they're one of the reasons that the Republicans dealt with a more a set of more ideological candidates in the House and the Senate was because those candidates did particularly well. You mentioned, uh, Andy, you mentioned uh, Ilan Omar as an example. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a bad example for the point I'm making, but um, people who become more uh, ideological, left-leaning or right-leaning to win their primary, but then are less competitive sort of in this broader um, general election campaign. Is there, anything, is there anything that attracts the voting propensities of the two populations? Uh, Matt's nodding. Yes. Um, no, you, you, you totally put your finger on it, right? Your whole hand, both hands. You're exactly right. Um, yes, it turns out that the more ideological you are in either party, the more often you vote, you vote consistently, and you are more likely to participate in your party's primary elections. Yeah. Um, so the people who have the biggest impact on our electoral politics are the most ideological even though they do not represent sort of a majority, um, a majority of, of you know, Americans, right? Mm-hmm. Another thing to keep in mind too, is of course, as we see an increased number of states and especially house districts that are safely controlled by one party in those general elections, um, the, those general elections aren't competitive. The real action is all in the primary elections, right? Um, so basically you have a two-party system on, to, up, on top of which you layer a primary system, right? On top of which you layer sort of sort of tribalistic partisanship. And what you have is a system in which the most competitive races that make the most difference in, you know, are basically those outcomes are largely determined by the most um, ideological segments of our population, right? So it's kind of this perfect confluence, <laughs> um, which is is really driving sort of our, our polarization and partisanship in the electoral context. And I would, I think in the, in a previous era of American uh, electoral politics, you could kind of make peace with that system knowing that your Grover Norquist types were voting in the primaries that are Republican side. What I mean by that is, you know, extreme commitment to small government, extreme commitment to cutting taxes, um, kind of those core traditional conservative Republican values. And you could you could live with sort of like the Bernie Sanders um, verging on democratic socialism kinds of folks voting in democratic primaries. Because those candidates would have to sort of elide back towards the middle in the general election to try to, to try to pick up sort of median voters. But what you have now is a subset, particularly in the Republican Party, of voters who are more ideological. I'm putting ideological in scare quotes because their ideology really is adherence to Donald Trump and questioning the validity of the voting system. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different kind of ideology, so to say, right. than just right. low taxes, small government, or something like that. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, as you see, sort of the the fear and hatred, and and you know, sort of rise on both sides, and really, sort of the Trump personality cults, you know, on the Republican side, that becomes a problem, right? But I, I think what you see is like, you know, oh, you know, since the prime, I mean, we first saw primary elections implemented, you know, we've talked about this before, you know, beginning of the 20th century to sort of bring reform to sort of the machine politics and the yep. smoke filled yep. rooms in which the party organizations had sort of ironclad sort of grip on sort of their parties. And we sort of swung completely in the opposite direction. And for the next 50 years, sort of chipped away at that. By the time you get to the middle of the 20th century, basically primary, we basically decided primary elections is entirely how we're going to decide who runs under each party's label, right? Under their banner. And basically this means the party organizations have no ability to sort of, um, or far less ability to, to control who runs under the party label. They can't control sort of the candidate quality. They have a hard time recruiting candidates and getting those candidates sort of situated um, yep. to run in the general election, right? Now, yeah. basically it's the people that decide. And we're one of the few developed sort of democracies in the whole world that basically lets the voting population decide who the party's candidates are going to be, right? You don't have this in most other countries. Um, and and when you do see other countries dabble in this, you basically, you know, see the parties choose the most extreme candidates, right? So when Labour tried this, you know, in Great Britain, they chose Jeremy Corbyn, right? right. Um, so I I would much rather see us see, you know, us move towards a sort of a compromise position in which right. Citizens have some say in the primary process, right? But maybe they do this through sort of a a, a ranked choice, you know, 
voting mm-hmm. method in an open primary, right? right. Um, which encourages sort of moderate candidates um, to, to jump in and encourages mm-hmm. the more ideological candidates to moderate their positions. And then to give a, a more of a role for um, for the party organizations to sort of step in and sort of put their thumb on the scale of, you know, on those candidates who are going to be more high quality and are going to represent the party well and and basically seek the party's long-term interests. So I'd love to see like nominating conventions come back, for example, um, with a with a sort of reform to um, our primary election methods. We we can't keep doing what we're doing, especially in the context of all of these these safe um, these safe seats. Yeah, and I think I would just add to that. I mean, like you know, you think about all that in the context of American government and American constitution, right? And that's you know, it's precisely how the constitution's kind of designers thought of government, right? But on the one hand, we have to have the people involved in selecting it. We do not want to have a government that does not have, you know, kind of the accountability to the people, which is why the house has always been designed as a place for, you know, the people to directly elect the representatives, you know, financial bills are supposed to emerge um, in the house, right? But, you know, we need to have other parts that are not directly accountable to the people that give a little bit more of a buffer so that we cannot be kind of tossed to and fro by every wave of extremism. And what we've done increasingly is we become tossed to and fro by every wave of, ex- wave of extremism on both right and left. And that's that's really a problem. All right, folks, we've talked candidate quality. We've also talked a little bit about the swinginess of our system and the, the impact of, of primaries and partisanship primaries. Uh, we haven't addressed the other hypothesis that I threw at you, uh, Matt. You um, you torpedoed my question, my the point about exit polls, and that's fine. But this, <laughs> the, the position still remains. Did did the Dobbs decision and uh, reproductive rights and abortion just end up mattering more to voters in this election than we thought it did? Yes, um, I mean, to your point about exit polls. I mean, so exit polls. Democrats are overrepresented in those. And so um, so exit polls maybe tell you a little bit more about what Democrats thought than what Republicans thought or the population as a whole. Right. So it and those do seem to suggest that um, that abortion was on the mind of many Democrats. But there's other data points we can look to as well. Right. So we had five states which had um, some sort of uh, referendum on their ballot, which either um, tries to sort of take a more pro-choice position of protecting sort of access to abortion or pro-life position of restricting that access, right? Or creating a constitutional amendment, for example, in the state of Kentucky, which would allow the legislature to implement restrictions. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that every pro-life referendum lost and every pro-choice referendum won. And in addition, the pro-choice referenda outpaced support for Democrats, this is notable, for example, in the state of Michigan, where they had a pro-choice referendum, um, which received a greater share of the votes than um, than your than a lot of the Democrats did in the state. For example, Governor Democratic incumbent um, Gretchen Whitmer, right, who just won her her reelection um, for maintaining the governorship. So. So all of these data points suggest that the abortion issue actually did help Democrats. There was back in the summer, I, I said I was skeptical that the abortion issue would be able to help, especially given all the fundamentals. Um, and I think if Republicans had not taken more extreme positions and insisted on trying to implement extensive restrictions, I think perhaps this issue never would have gotten off the ground for Democrats. But but it did in part because of the rhetoric and the positions that Republicans took, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this was basically the only thing Democrats really had to run on, right? And so they ran on it. A lot of their campaign advertising basically ran on this issue. Um, and there are a lot of there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the Republican positions. So the pro-life movement, right? You're part of the pro-life movement. Um, your movement's gonna have to do a better job engaging sort of the hearts and minds of of sort of your sort of middle of the road Americans, because right now there is not majority support for any sort of um, pro-life position on abortion. Right. And the idea of sort of trying to sort of impose sort of these restrictions um, through a democratic process is just shown to sort of completely flame out. So. Um, so, yeah, I think abortion uh, politics actually did have something of an impact on this election. I think I largely agree with that. I think what I would the one thing I would maybe add as a kind of caveat is when you ask, like if you go back to the exit polls for a second, 
when you ask people why they voted the way they vote, I mean, what we can assume is that they're just coming up with their vote, their vote preferences kind of in a vacuum out of their own, like kind of mm-hmm. reflection on the election. They are themselves shaped and even maybe we should say manipulated by the way their party pitched it. Right. So what is the important issue in this election? If you're a Republican, you're being told it's, you know, it's the election integrity, it's inflation. Right. It, it, then you tend to parrot that back. Right. And if you're a Democrat, right, and you're coming in and voting and you've been told it's abortion, 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 what do you mention as the important issue? It's abortion, right? So I think there's a little bit of a, um, you know, maybe we'll call it a self-fulfilling prophecy there. I mean, I just know like, you know, this is anecdotal, right? But like in my own, uh, the advertising that I received in my box, right, from our governor, Tim Walls, right? He hammered that issue, mm-hmm. which to me is kind of a, I'll be blunt, a dumb issue for him, um, first of all. Uh, because he has almost nothing to do with it. We have a constitutional like provision that you know guarantees kind of the right to abortion, quote unquote, in Minnesota, right? It's there. The governor cannot just override it. And Scott Jensen has said, like, I mean, I can't just override this, right? Even though initially he said some things like he might try to. Um, you know, like you can't, right? So there's this is kind of a silly issue in terms of like the things that our governor should actually be doing for the next four years. It's not what he's going to be actually doing. He knows it's not what he's going to be doing. And yet, as Matt said, like that felt like more of a kind of winning issue, quote unquote. So that that I think then shapes the perceptions of the electorate of what do you perceive to be important? So I think it, it did, but it's partly, you know, is this about abortion as such? Or is this about, again, all those other issues of like why we're not very happy with some of these Republicans? Um, so then we're going to go toward the party that's not as crazy on those issues. And what are they telling us is important? This issue. Um, so that's my kind of somewhat convoluted way of thinking about it. But I think it, I think it was important more so than we thought, but I also think that's somewhat shaped by the the narrative the Democratic Party put out. Well, right, and I, I think um, you put your finger on another reason why exit polling um, is not to be relied upon, <laughs> right? Um, and this is why you get a lot more. Le- I mean, hey, this is why you can look at well, how do people actually vote when you have abortion yeah. and anti, you know, pro-abortion, anti-abortion positions on the ballot? You can look and see like how those did, and yeah. then compare that to support for the parties, right? You know, basically it was a pro-choice sweep and the pro-choice position on those referenda yeah. outpaced the Democrats, right? Yep. So you guess yeah. that you've got exactly. middle of the road Americans yep. who are, you know, sort of independents or sort of weak, weak yep. partisans um, on either side. They're peeling yep. off um, to to vote a certain way. So. Yep. Yep. And that's a nice independent measure, too, because uh-huh. um uh-huh. Since you're just getting just just the provision itself and not the candidates associated with it. Yeah, exactly. All right, folks. um, Any additional? Well, I'm avoiding something. I probably shouldn't avoid it. We should talk about it. This is not what we're built for. This is not. This is not. This is not why this train runs down the tracks. (sighs) What are the political implications of this election? Does I'm asking you to play pundit here. We'll, we'll, we'll just do uh, this for five minutes, and then we'll we'll, we'll knock it off. But is, are we, um, oh, come uh, on, we're here for a little Biden's, bit. Of uh, the, the Democrats are going to lose their trifecta. Republicans are going to take control of the House. Um, I'll say the most obvious, blunt thing um, up front: say farewell to any legislative agenda for the next two years. Um, nothing's going to happen. Uh, the Republicans only have one one half of the legislature. The Democrats do not have the full control legislature. There's not going to be any any major uh, legislative achievements over the next two years. Period. Right, it's going to be governed by executive order. I think that's right. Mm. I mean, I think one implication to me, and we'll see how this plays out. I think because again, how the narrative gets shaped. This was not a great night for Donald Trump. Um, he may well announce that he's running for president tomorrow. That seems to be the indication mm-hmm. last I heard. But but. It was not a great night. I mean, the controversial candidates he backed um, often struggled. Um, his vision for the party um, does not seem to have been widely affirmed. And it's you know kind of the subtext of a lot of what we've been talking about. On the other hand, right, I mean, Ron DeSantis, who offers many you know aspects of maybe, um, you know, the things people liked about Donald Trump, but with some of the le- less of the kind of controversy and over the top statements, right, um, did great in Florida. He won a lot of votes and he, you know, after winning a narrow squeaky election um, four years ago, um, he cleaned Charlie Chris clock. Right. I mean, so, you know, that was, that was striking, right. I mean, Florida was sort of exceptional maybe Florida has become much more red, but still that's, you know, that's striking that he won by so much. So what's the future of the Republican party, um, this was a underwhelming election for them. They should have done better. They didn't. Um, they need to ask hard questions. 
Um, and I think the implications are, you know, they're, they're starting to do that. There's some of those questions about Trump. There's questions about McConnell, which I think is a different issue. But, um, you know, who should lead this going forward and who should lead into 2024? Um, I think we're going to see that that conversation playing out. Yeah. I've become convinced that to move away from the personage of Donald Trump, now I'm not talking about the ideology he stands for, not right. talking about sort of yep. a more populist sentiment within the Republican Party, or even a more explicitly nationalist sentiment within the Republican Party, but just literally the personage of Donald Trump. I think you need another um, notable avatar, um, mm-hmm. and it could be Ron DeSantis, right? Yeah. You need somebody yeah. who looks like they stack up well to Trump that is big yeah. enough that they're somewhat impervious to his sort of sniping attacks kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. And that really those sort of Republican voters who are not issue driven, but very much personality driven can shift their allegiances from the personality of Donald Trump to the personality of, of somebody like Donald Trump. Otherwise I think his power, particularly the primaries uh, yeah. remains very strong. Yeah, uh, but somebody like DeSantis could wrest that from him. But here's right. the thing. If that happens, it will happen slowly, slowly, and then all at once. Yeah, I think that's right. And so that makes for a very interesting 2024 Republican presidential uh, cycle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so many thoughts. I mean, you opened the door to rank punditry. So here we go. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm interested to see how many, I mean, cause you do have some Trump diehards like, they, they think he hung the moon um, and will vote for him again, you know, or his allies against anyone else. Right. Yep. But I do wonder how many, you know, of the sort of super nationalist populist, you know, Republicans will say, you know, we continue to lose under Trump um, and his allies continue to lose in general elections. Um, we need to start thinking about, um, winning general elections um yep. and electability and i i wonder i mean so the the hardcore we will only support trump you know part of the republican party is not a majority of the republican party right i think there are there's enough people who either oppose trump altogether or who held their nose went along with trump and are sort of starting to realize that you know he's not actually interested in winning elections he's interested in sort of loyalty um I wonder if enough of those people are going to peel off and support right. support some other people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. what I'm I'm looking at is, you know, are we going to have Republican primary, which is mainly a DeSantis versus Trump, or are we going to have a Republican primary in which it's Trump versus everyone else, right? Which is what we had in 2016, right? And if we have the latter, then Trump could sort of come in by default um, and win the whole thing because yeah. no one is able to sort of consolidate the the anti sort of non-Trump support, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in Trump's interest to see as many people as possible jump into yep. this race. But he's going about it the wrong way, right? Because he's already <laughs> focusing all of his fire on DeSantis, which only right. elevates DeSantis, yep. you know, puts more media attention on him. And sort of diminishes, you know, the amount of limelight that can be grabbed by these other sort of Republican hopefuls. So he's he's totally going about it the wrong way. Um, yep. But again, I think, you know, Trump, he's not always strategic. He's always thinking about sort of um, potential threats to him um, and about sort of loyalty above above everything else. So I'm really curious to see how things shake out over the next over the next few weeks. Oh, I'm also looking at the House because Kevin McCarthy has a huge fight on his hands if he becomes Speaker of the House. Oh, my word, um, so much. It's going to be, the House is just going to be an absolute chaotic mess. And it'll be interesting to see yep. what happens there. Yeah, well, Okay, what, one more, and I'm going to keep you to a minute each um, <laughs> because I think this question is so ridiculous that I, I hate myself for asking it. Because wow. the, the, the sort of still developing outcome of the 2022 midterms Increase, decrease, or have no effect on the likelihood that Joe Biden runs for re-election. I, I think I'm going to go Both almost. You no took effect. eye contact away from the screen, like I said. Yeah, I'm bad for asking it, but we talked about Trump. I want to throw the Biden side out there. I think almost no effect, and here's my logic. I think, I mean, I just don't really know what's going on in Joe Biden's head right now. I think he should. My, you know, my position is clear. He should not run for re-election. He's going to be 82. This is a bad idea. For the country, I think his only chance of winning really 
is if he has to run against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, he might be able to beat Trump again. I don't see him beating anybody else the Republicans could plausibly nominate unless they nominated somebody absolutely nuts, which seems unlikely, um, you know, even with like, our, our situation. So I think he's making the decision based on, I mean, either he just has this burning desire to run for president, it's an intoxicating thing, um, or he pragmatically realizes um, this certainly doesn't hurt his chances, but I don't know that it really changes the calculus. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard a lot of, I think it maybe slightly reinforces that he's running again. I think if Democrats really got hammered, um, that would suggest that, you know, yep. um, the Biden administration hasn't been able to achieve success. Um, yep. I think the Democrats will take from this like that Biden has to run. And they've already started saying that. Right. So I yeah. think this actually nudges him in that direction, um, even though I think actually the Democrats would be better off in the long run. Um having Biden sort of usher it out of the way um, and trying to ramp up campaigns of some Democratic hopefuls. Because right now, the main reason Biden is probably going to run and be the Democratic candidate is the Democratic Party has really no one else. (laughs) They don't have any sort of obvious alternatives that could really galvanize support. Kamala Harris, that's not going to work. Gavin Newsom, like he's gunning for a presidential bid, but man, people are going to like Biden more than him. Right. Um, so I, I just don't know, you know, who amongst the Democrats is sort of well positioned, um, to sort of take the mantle from him. Right. So I think he's going to run, run, um, even if it's a sort of, uh, a DeSantis Republican nomination. So, yeah, maybe you're right. But maybe I'm wrong. I was wrong about the midterms three weeks before. So I've been wrong a lot I was of things. wronger. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah i was wrong too no republicans got elected statewide in minnesota <laughs> we're still waiting on that one in, in our defense guys you know we we were saying republicans would are more likely to win seats given the fundamentals but we all agreed yep. that these races yep. are going to be close so yep indeed well thank you you've spent 45 minutes listening to three wrong people um, <laughs> No, we'll be back in your feed in the near future to talk about um, a final wrap up of the elections. Once we know kind of the full uh, scale of the um, the House and some of these other races that are shaking out, uh, sure, including okay. some governorships as well. We should talk about governorships at some point too. Yeah. Um, thanks for listening to us. You can always get in touch with us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. We'd love to take your questions. Uh, we um, also are part of the Channel 300 Podcast Network. There's lots of great things on the channel. Uh, tweet victory, stay gold, um, all kinds of things are coming down the pipe here. Make sure you listen to Video Store um, and lots of other good content from our uh, from our f- affiliates. Uh, thanks for listening to us. And until we're back in your podcast feed in the near future, go Royals. <laughs>